Hey, everybody, welcome back to this week at startups. Uh, the story gets crazy. Uh, and it's only gonna get crazier <laughs> from this point on because we are reaching the point in billion dollar loser, uh, a great book must read uh, from Reese Weiderman, uh, Reeves Weiderman, sorry. Um, that uh, comes out uh, today, or maybe when you're watching this yesterday. Well worth getting. It's a great listen too, by the way, if you're into listening to audiobooks and it moves pretty quickly. And uh, as we talked about earlier, you basically made the strategic decision to let the facts speak for themselves. And really, the fact is, it was a good business, maybe not a great business, not a tech business, with a founder who was, you know, effervescent, mercurial, um, but then quickly, who I'll use the word, became deranged and disconnected from reality, and. As far as you estimate, this happened when that $4 billion infusion comes in. And to set the stage here, Masa Yoshi-san, I've met with him. Uh, actually, when I went to Tokyo, I met with him day, two, hour, two times back to back, three hours each time. I mean, he hmm. is an intense guy. Mm -hmm. um, and he loves ideas and he loves whiteboarding. But am I correct that Adam showed up late for his meeting with Masa Yoshi-san? And do you know if this happened in New York or in Tokyo? Uh, the other way around, actually, Masa was late. Um, Masa, Masa was a, late. Masa was late. He had an okay. interesting day in New York. This was December of 2016, um, which if we can go back to that moment almost four years ago, uh, Donald Trump had just been elected president. And, and the reason ah. Masa was in New York, uh, was to meet with Donald Trump, um, it, basically in hopes of currying favor, um, with the Trump administration for a variety of things that. Well, was, was this the whole lobby out. thing where everybody during that like two month period before the inauguration was going to kiss the ring in the lobby in and front Masayoshi, of the gold elevators? Oh yeah. god, that was so brutal to watch everybody go kiss the ring, and then I think Masayoshi-san comes out with like some like piece of the PowerPoint and holds it up, and Trump had signed it or something. I can't remember. Yeah, it was flashback. like a, it was a. Yeah, it was a piece of paper saying, I'm, I'm, I'm may butcher these numbers, but, but something to the effect of, we want to invest $50 billion to create X amount of jobs. And we're going to do uh, it in the next four years uh, in the United States, conveniently tied to uh, a, the term yeah. of, of at least one presidential term. Interesting. I wonder actually if you go back and look at how much he invested. If it actually turned out to be fifty billion, I think there, it's it's definitely it's definitely tens of billions. That's for sure. If there's an interesting, uh, I, I uh, among all the things I had to do for this book, the one one question I wanted to look back on and and haven't yet. So if there's any enterprising journalists out there or or, or anyone who wants to tally up how much um, SoftBank actually invested in the United States, how many jobs were created, because that was the promise, and I, I, yeah. I'd be curious to see see what the answer actually is. Yeah, it's it's definitely not. It, it, it might be half. It's not small. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not, not small. small. So, yeah. um, so that was the crazy day. So he gets yeah. So he 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 meets he meets Trump and 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 then he has this meeting with Adam and and they had met very briefly at a at a conference in India um, earlier in the year, a startup conference where Adam spoke and um, but this was really the first time um, that that Masa had even been in a WeWork. You know, he kind of knew about the business, but it wasn't something that. That SoftBank thought about, you know, they were they were a tech company. The Vision Fund, which they had just started, was was focused on artificial intelligence. It was not focused on real estate. And um, so, yeah, Masa came for this this quick tour. Um, you know, Adam took him to WeWork's R and D lab um, to kind of show the techie side of the company. And you know, these were things like a, like a smartphone booth that you know changed temperatures, or a desk that automatically went up and down. I mean, we're going back a couple of years. 
these were mild innovations, but this was not moving us toward the singularity or, or anything <laughs> like that. Far from. I mean, come on. Like, it's a little bit laughable that like your, your technology is like phone booth based and like standing desk. I mean, I'm here at a standing desk. Like <laughs> having the standing desk stand when I get in front of it is, is not innovation. Well, I mean, this is the truth is I wouldn't say Adam was a Luddite, but he was not like a tech driven guy. He was a sales no. guy. He was a hype man. Yeah, it's it's actually sort of safe to say. I mean, he he didn't really use a computer um, uh, it, it, at all. Um, Adam wha- is dyslexic. He's he's pretty severely dyslexic, and it's something he's talked openly about. And and so he's not the guy to sit there and send a bunch of emails. Um, mm-hmm. And and so you know, for better or worse, he he was he was not your typical kind of tech CEO. He was no. the guy who was going to. And, and, and to his credit, I think, um, he figured out what he was good at. And what he was good at was getting in a room and pitching whatever he's pitching to, to a group of people. Now, is this the moment where Masayoshi-san takes out his stylist and iPad or something and draws mm-hmm. a term sheet and signs it with him in the car? Yeah, sort of digital cocktail napkin agreement from, on this deal. And, and, you know, of course, these... You know, it's a story Adam and Masa love to tell because it, it especially on on the way up, um, it's it sounds like just this big bet that we're making that, of course, is is great. Of course, after that, there were months and months of diligence from yeah. from SoftBank and a lot of skepticism from sort mm-hmm. of the the sort of middle to upper ranks at SoftBank about why are we investing in this real estate company. A, a, a lot of pushback on it, but. Ultimately, as at WeWork, you know, as people told me, Adam got what he wanted when when there was something he had his mindset on. That's that's the same case at SoftBank, and Moss is pretty open about that. When he has a feeling about something, um, that's what's going to happen. And in the book, you're, um, I, I was trying to see, and I was trying to guess your politics, uh, mm. and you seem to be a little judgmental about, is the only part I felt you were a little bit judgmental about, the strategy of um, a lot of misses mm-hmm. are okay if you hit a home run. Mm. Do you think that that is a bad aspect of capitalism or a good aspect? Or are you indifferent about it? Are you a socialist? Are you a capitalist? How, how, how would you describe yourself when you look at capitalism and especially high growth startups? I think I think it's an okay model. It's it's a it's a risky model, right? Like it, it, it you know, going for home runs every time. Um, you know, you you have a tendency, and I, I think sometimes the home, you know, this is, sports metaphor is going to fall apart. But sort of the the home runs, um, the, the ones that are successes can have kind of these unintended consequences. I mean, we worked for years was was a um, was a home run, and and now we're looking at kind of a situation where it it has sort of like almost warped the sort of real estate world in in the way that you know softbank dumping all of this money into various industries has kind of warped these industries like how how much are we actually willing to pay for a cab ride or our burrito to be delivered or office space we don't totally know because all of these services have been subsidized i mean you might not call it socialism but but it's not it's not capitalism at least at it's at its sort of rawest form and i think to think about like sort of the dangers of this, I mean, I remember there's there's a guy I, I quote in the book who was sort of a competitor of Adams, um, and just talking about seeing him on the way up. Uh, this this person was sort of you know an avowed capitalist, um, and he but he kind of said you know if if Adam is successful, sort of the way WeWork played the game of kind of playing fast and loose, growth at all costs, that's all that matters. Um, is this system actually like good? Is is the system as we've set it up like 
good for the broader society. And I, I don't have an easy uh, answer to that. I, I think clearly I'm, I'm a user of a lot of these services, um, but I do think we have to grapple with exactly what all this money that sort of started sloshing around, particularly from the Vision Fund, and, and what that actually did to various industries. So we're starting to see how software can take away friction and make the world more delightful uh, through enterprise SaaS solutions. Today will be no different. Song Laurent is the co-founder and CEO of Squire, which is getsquire.com. Yep. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So uh, Squire allows uh, you, I guess you guys were like the Uber of barber shops in the beginning, but I think you quickly evolved into providing a full POS point of sale scheduling and app uh, development platform for all barbershops, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we were sort of talking about this sort of mini entrepreneurial nature of it, uh, of, you know, hair cutters, uh, barbers, hairstylists, etc. They all have their own little businesses. They do. They are, they are an entrepreneurial bunch where they move from one salon to another. They might change and say, I got a better deal here, or they might then start their own barbershop. You do see that path, right? In these um, uh, employees or these freelancers who then become owners of businesses? All, all the time. That, that's, that's kind of the natural trajectory um, for a successful career um, in, this, in this industry is that you know, eventually many of them, they want to open a shop. I mean, that's the main way that they can you know, build more wealth and, and you know, make more money outside of just the number of haircuts they're providing each day. So I, absolutely, we see that. And so if they were not 1099 employees, they wouldn't be as portable or flexible. They wouldn't be able to leave and go to work for another one to start their own. They would just be hourly workers who had to work specific shifts. And that would be less, that would give them less mobility. It would give them probably less mobility. And also it would, I think that's a type of model that could work uh, for some barbershops that, that have the resources. Um, but you know, like we said before, a barbershop is a pretty easy business to start uh, yeah. to, to, you know, and the overhead and the amount of assets required is really low. And that's part of the, one of the appealing reasons of why there's so many shops and why it's, it's, it's interesting for, for these, these uh, business owners. If, if we required all the barbers to be employees, it'd be a really heavy lift, I think, just starting a barbershop um, and getting it off the ground. Um, so, you know, we see that model more like in the franchises um, that have, you know, 30, 40, 50. Oh, the you know. super cuts of the yeah, world. Yeah, they pay people a, an hourly wage. Yeah, they pay people hourly. But for the one off uh, mom, So you have to be a pop. shift worker. You got to work eight hour shifts when they tell you. Yeah. Typically. And you got to do X number of hours per week and you're not allowed to work at another salon. Yeah. Yeah. They basically dictate your entire work. Yeah. Typically, yeah. See, I so, think this is the important yeah. discussion that people don't understand is that once you add all these regulations, it becomes impossible for somebody if they had to hire everybody full time and take on that risk to to pop up a barbershop, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it would it it would be. Um, I mean, we can think of. I'm sure there's there's room to think of how how it could be improved and how we could provide some more safeguards for, for barbers outside of the current situation. But I definitely think it would be heavy handed to re to require all barbers to be employees. We would see a lot of shops shutting down, most likely. Yeah. This is the thing I think there's, there's good intention, I think, when people think they're trying to protect workers. But 
I don't think that this class of worker wants to be forced to be an hourly worker. They, the, what do you see amongst that group in terms of do they want to be hourly workers or do they just want to be the uh, freelancers the way they are? If you were to ask 10 of them, how many would say I want the current system? How many would say they want to just make the same amount of money, but be hourly? It, to be fair, I haven't polled this, uh, so yeah. I don't know for sure. But an anecdotally, I would yeah. guess that they like the current system. They want to be able to uh, charge, you know, as much as possible, make as much as possible for the services they're providing and have the kind of flexibility. Um, and, and they also like to build their own book of business, uh, many barbers. Um, so they, you know, they like to think that, you know, these are their customers that they've been building. So when they do go to another shop, um, they can bring those, you know, customers. How do you do them. that with the software? I'm curious. How do you manage that with people booking? Just the, do they split the ownership of that lead? Does the, individual barber get a copy of the contact information and the store or does the individual person have to like build it up and build up their own phone book on their iphone well various case by case and it depends on who how the shop is set up so if they're if they're a booth rental and each barber is really just an independent business owner doing doing their own thing generally they'll have access to to the customer data and they can take it with them when they're commissioned, when it's a commission shop and the relationship is with the owner of the shop and Squire, then mm. in that case, we, we kind of default to the owner and, and like how they want to run it. Um, a lot of times the owners invest a lot of money in marketing and branding into, you know, acquiring these customers. So it's not really fair to them uh, to then have the barbers, you know, take all take that information. Take the book of business yeah. and leave within, start a competitor. Yeah. yeah, across the street, you know, which we've seen <laughs> a lot of times, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, there's a little compa competition yeah. going there. Yeah. Um, talk to me about the culture of barbershops and what they represent sort of in society and then how you think about that in terms of building the software uh, for these barbershops. Obviously, building a dedicated app is part of that, right? People mm -hmm. want to have the look and feel. Talk to me a little bit about that culture and what they represent in terms of community building and then what do these barbershops make in terms of What's their TAM for all the barbershops or individual barbershops? What can they expect to make? Yeah. Um, so in terms of the, the culture, it's, 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 it's a subculture, really. And the people in this industry are some of the most passionate um, people I've ever worked with. Um, they don't look at being a barber as like a job or even a profession. Most of them, they look at it as their life calling. And, and, you know, they'll tell you, you know, being a barber saved my life. You know, I was doing this before, I was doing that before. And this is the one thing that really has given them uh, meaning. So it's, it's really inspiring to, to, to be working with them. Um, and they're also very proud, very proud of what they do. Um, that's like the, the fact that we're so specialized and so focused on this vertical really gives us an advantage um, uh, relative to, to competitors who are trying to go horizontally after a lot of different verticals. They know that Squire is, is, is frankly, it's the only company that is dedicated exclusively to them and to solving their needs um, and to providing value. Um, so that, that's something that we're, we, you know, we're really proud of as well. Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis. And back on the pod, that's right, the Acquired FM boys are here. David Rosenthal and Ben Gilbert, welcome back to the podcast. After two very strong appearances in 2020, the audience loves when you come do the news roundtable, boys. How are we doing? Very Third strong. I've always wanted to be very strong in the eyes of Jason Calacanis, so I appreciate that. <laughs> this was an interesting moment, I think. I want to get your guys' take on... 
Ted Cruz, who I'm no fan of, I'll be totally honest. I find him to be a blowhard and just like most politicians, just incredibly annoying to even listen to. But boy, you don't want to be on the other side of this guy because sometimes he does get it right. And I thought he was putting up a pretty good, uh, a couple of swings at Jack. Let's listen to this and come back in a minute uh, after Ted uh, hits hard at Jack. Mr. Dorsey, does Twitter have the ability to influence elections? No. You don't believe Twitter has any ability to influence elections? No, we are one part of a spectrum of communication channels that people have. So you're testifying to this committee right now that, that, that Twitter, when it silences people, when it censors people, when it blocks political speech, that has no impact on elections? People, people have choice of other communication channels with which... Not if, not if they don't hear information. If you don't think you have the power to influence elections, why do you block anything? Uh, well, we have policies that are focused on making sure that more voices on the platform are possible. We see a lot of abuse and harassment, which ends up silencing people and having them leave from the platform. Mr. Dorsey, who the hell elected you and put you in charge of what the media are allowed to report and what the American people are allowed to hear? And why do you persist in behaving as a Democratic super PAC? silencing views to the contrary of your political beliefs. Let, let's give uh, Mr. Dorsey uh, uh, a few seconds to answer that, and uh, then we'll have to conclude this this uh, segment. Mr. Well, we're, we're not doing that. Uh, and this is why I opened um, this hearing with calls for more transparency. We realize we need to earn trust more. We realize that more accountability is needed to show our intentions and to show the outcomes. Thank you, um, Senator. So I, I hear the concerns and acknowledge them, but we want to we fix it with more transparency. All right. So what, what's your guys' take on that one? I mean, and this is the mix up. This Ooh. is the battle of who has the better 2020 beard. Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about those beards for a minute? <laughs> I mean, it does require a pause. I, you know, Jack's got such a strong beard game now. He's like ZZ Top territory for sure. Yeah. Remember... Um, Brian Wilson, the Giants reliever, back in like the 2010 uh, oh, yeah. World Series. Yeah, th- I mean, this is this is hitting a level of pandemic supremacy that has rarely been seen in the beard game. Uh, I mean, this is more than like mustache. What do they call like the facial hair? November or something? I don't yeah, know. yeah, Movember. 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 Yeah. This is like this is he's not even up to Movember. I mean, this is no. October, and he's already coming into November like this. All right, I, I, mean, I apologize for getting us onto this. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this I'm giving you both an off ramp here, and apologizing. Who wins? Who wins this this slugfest here? So, so look, like I, they're they're both wrong. Um, like it's ludicrous to take the statement at face value that no, we can't impact elections. Like a hundred percent, you can, and that's what you're worried about, and what we're worried about, and why you're, you know, like that, that's why we're here. And right. the other thing is like... You could see ah, that setup coming a mile away. Gosh. It's like... <laughs> Literally. You, you could see Ted Cruz like re- rehearsing with his friends and family like that line about who elected you. And I... I yes. You know, it's just such a... I, I, it's it's I, kind I, of like a Sorkin script at this point, you totally. know? Totally. And I wish the I could credit... The sovereign state of Mississippi will not withstand the... I mean, I felt like I was in The Insider or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I I forget who had this take. It may have been Nilay Patel at The Verge um, 
But the, the, the point that I think is really interesting here is the strategy is create these clips and these sound bites of you hitting Jack, you being Ted mm. Cruz, and then distributing them on Jack's platform. It's this yeah. like crazy <laughs> irony of the whole situation of That's like so you're so trying brilliant. to earn the love from your base for doing this to this guy who created the way that you communicate to your base. It's wild. Yes. Uh, it, that is like an inception type moment. Uh, AOC also incredibly good at this at this point of, you know, setting people up for these, you know, tweet clips. Yeah. Uh, the, the clip game. It's basically politics is coming up to these like s- these hearings and how strong is your clip game? Um, so I think we all agree that these platforms actually impact elections, which is why they're having this and why the Russians interfering and creating bot farms is a whole issue. So Jack loses that part of it. But then Jack kind of turns it on and says, hey, listen, we're just, we're here to, we're here to help. We, we want to make it transparent. We, we're asking you for solutions. Did this Kung Fu move and flipping the energy here work, David, or not? Or does it not even matter? Uh, I mean, I think from like a, politics standpoint it just depends what your goal is like no i like i don't think it landed well in the moment here but i mean it's i think it gets back to what the goal is like the goal here is is clips for ted cruz like i think the real question is like what what could consequences of all of this be for the platforms um Interestingly, I think, you know, kind of along the lines I was saying earlier about Twitter trying to be orthogonal here, um, any consequences are probably good for Twitter, I think. Like uh, anything that weakened, as long as it also weakens Facebook and then opens up seams for Twitter. Um, If it, on the other hand, if it just creates more opportunity for regulatory capture for Facebook, which actually thinking about it now, that's probably the more likely outcome here uh then that could be bad so yeah i don't know i I like the way they're saying hey what is your suggestion please you give us clarity y'all are so smart go ahead i mean i think everybody can agree what happens when another person threatens somebody or uses violence or hates speech or doxes like these are low-hanging fruits super easy to say we kick that person off our platform just like somebody came into our restaurant and took a a leak in the corner, we're going to kick them out of the restaurant. Like, is, is, there's no discussion here. But somebody comes in and says, hey, you know what? Um, I, I have stolen material or I'm reporting on stolen material um, about Hunter Biden, which apparently, like, the information's correct. And then the question is, how did they acquire this information? And then that leads to a whole nother can of worms, which is, is the New York Post not... And I, I sound like I'm red-pilled here, but I don't believe in censorship. <laughs> Uh, is the New York Post not allowed to do investigative journalism in the way the Washington Post is? Well, here's, here's another lowbrow. Or here's another way to phrase that question is, uh, and yours is loaded and mine's going to be loaded too. If you don't have the editor, the managing editor or, or whatever the title is at the newspaper doing their job, is it Twitter's responsibility to mm-hmm. do the job of the editor? Like, should... I like it, that framing. What if... What if um, uh, not the New York Post, but any other publication just turns into uh, a loosely edited uh, whole bunch of bundled substacks. And then 
that brand becomes very popular. And so people trust it. And then people are putting out their own basically unedited, you know, journalist, journalist, here's something, obtain source, and then straight to the public. If there, if the editor is abdicating their responsibility, at what point is it the responsibility of the platform to do that in our, you know, in our republic? And like, that's the thorny issue. There's a value chain here of information to synthesizing it into content, editing content, and then doing distribution. And as long as all of the actors before distribution are doing the job as they have for the last few hundred years in our society, then it shouldn't be an issue. However, there's lots of business incentives to uh, not do those jobs exactly to the same level of rigor that we used to. And therefore, it's putting pressure on the platforms to play that role in society. I I think it's just an amazing point, Ben. You're basically saying, you know, the the post is going to be like, hey, we'll just publish this. And then, yeah, you guys amplify it. And and we get the benefit. We get the page use. Everybody wins. The incentives are so misaligned in terms of truthiness. Like if you want to get to the truth really link baiting and amplification on these platforms is just a wicked combination. And listen, it takes two to tango. The publications and the platforms are in cahoots to do link baiting to capture our attention, which is why poor David had to delete Twitter off of his phone because his anxiety was going off the charts. (laughs) (laughs) The best of this week in startups is brought to you by LinkedIn jobs. A business is only as strong as its people and every hire matters. Get $50 off your first job post at linkedin.com slash twist. Trends by The Hustle. Track and capitalize on emerging industries and trends before they explode. Start your two-week trial for just $1 at trends.co slash twist. Silicon Valley Bank. For over 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped thousands of tech and life science companies plan for the future. Learn more at svb.com slash next. Silicon Valley Bank, built for what's next. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of software that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. LinkedIn Sales Navigator. With face-to-face meetings now a thing of the past, you'll need to quickly adapt your sales strategy to stay ahead. LinkedIn Sales Navigator is the tool designed to help you master digital selling. Go to linkedin.com slash SaaS to start your 60-day free trial. That's linkedin.com slash S-A-A-S. Pipe. SaaS companies, this is for you. Pipe helps you unlock your recurring revenue as upfront capital. No debt, no loans, no dilution. Sign up in minutes and start trading on Pipe free for 12 months at pipe.com slash twist. Founders, you're owed over $50,000 by the IRS. Main Street gets it back for you in 20 minutes. Get back your cash at MainStreet.us slash twist. And our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at O-U-R-C-R-O 
wd.com slash twist.